morning as in recent weeks. I think you will find it easier over the course of this sermon to follow along in your bulletins as opposed to trying to trace these passages throughout uh, your own Bibles just because we're in a variety of places as we have been uh, this morning. We're coming down the home stretch of this series. Uh, there's a place for us, a biblical theology of place. We have this sermon and then two more to bring it to a conclusion. And in order to get us started on the theme for today, which is every place, if you look at the title of the sermon in the bulletin, I've got two passages that I would like to read for us. The first one is about our Lord Jesus Christ it's from Luke chapter 4. And the setting here, if, if we read just a few verses before this, it's the early part of Jesus' ministry, when, and now quoting, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So what Jesus was doing was becoming known by the people who were around, uh, and the reports were going out, and people were coming to Jesus on a regular basis seeking his ministry seeking his care, and that happens right up to and in the passage that uh, I'm going to read for us right now from Luke chapter 4, the Word of God. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, read wilderness from last week, he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus is not constrained to one place. He's not constrained to the town where he was born. He's not constrained to the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, it is the intent, it is the purpose of Jesus to go within Israel to various towns to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And then, of course, that's, that's the mission that Jesus has in particular, if you will, within the place of Israel. But then, as we continue on with his followers, the mandate that comes from Jesus, the commission for them, is that they are to go out into the world, and they're to go out into the world because this is not in your, in your bulletins, but because of what is written in Isaiah 49, 6 that says this with reference to the suffering servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And we get one little picture of that in the passage that I'm going to read to us. There are plenty of places that we could go to, uh, but I've chosen to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul is addressing a church that's outside of the place of Israel in Greece, and, and he's even taking this church and setting them in context of people in every place. Uh, you, you are one of the people in every place around the world who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So here are the opening then of 1 Corinthians. 
Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, we, by your grace, are amongst those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place. We pray that you would speak to us today from your word, that you would instruct us, and that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is stirred by what we hear from you. Spirit of God, be at work inside of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Stephen Neal is a writer who wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions. And as he begins that book, he notes that throughout history, most religions of mankind have been local and even tribal in character. So, so you worship your gods in your region, in your territory, probably in your city that has your particular temple in it. That is the place where you worship, and that might even extend into your home. Your home, your gods. It's local and tribal in character. And the gods were thus attached to people and to place. And not only were the gods themselves attached to people and to place, but so were the worship practices of the people of God, or sorry, of, of, of the gods of the people and the gods of the nations. They are attached to the places. And, and if you think about this, this then is the reason why as the people of God are preparing and being prepared by the Lord and Moses to go into the land of Canaan, you find all of the warnings that are there that when you get into this place, you're going to find a bunch of different gods in a bunch of different locations worship in a variety of ways. Don't imitate that. Don't do what you see taking place there. Instead, worship the Lord your God in the way that I have prescribed for you to do. Now, in our study uh, over the course of the summer thus far, we have seen how intentional God has been in giving Israel a very specific place of their own and how within that place worship itself was even more people slash place centric. And that's been a theme that we've seen, the way God developed it throughout the Old Testament. Today, what we want to do is make sure that we understand clearly that Israel in the place called Canaan, the temple in the place called Jerusalem, and, and the, even the Ark of the Covenant in the place called the Holy Place, or the Most Holy Place, as great as they were, each one in their own way, they are in fact signs. They are models. They're types. They are shadows of a far more expansive purpose and promise of God Almighty. The Lord of heaven and earth is no mere local deity. 
He, he's no mere God of just one particular tribe who's attached only to one particular people in one particular place. We sing, Christ shall have dominion over land and sea, earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. The verses that we have read already, especially in our Old Testament readings, and you might want to open those up here just for a moment on pages four and five. Those verses are clear evidence of what we might call the macro intent of God. This is the big picture. This is the grand scheme of God. Do you want to know what it's all about? What the, what the purpose of everything is? These verses answer that question. This is where it is all heading. God's intent is to fill the earth with his glory, with the knowledge of his glory. His intent is that it should be his glory in absolutely every place. Not because, and I think this is worth saying, I say it periodically, but let me say it again just for clarity's sake. Not because God has some kind of fragile ego and he just needs to have his ego stroked a little bit by people who worship him and say he's great in other places. But instead, God wants to fill the earth with his glory because there's nothing better. There's nothing better. If there was something better than God's glory with which to fill the earth, God would be for that. God would fill the earth with that. But there isn't anything. Because with his glory is his blessing, is his peace, is his joy, is his presence. It is sweetness itself, rest itself, to have the glory of God filling the earth. Now, this macro intent of God to fill the earth, we see it in the first place in the mission that he has given to us. So the very words that are addressed to us first and foremost as humanity reflect this mission. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion. Eden was a place that God had created. As we have noted, I'm sure it was a beautiful place. It was a fruitful place. And I bet they loved it. I bet they loved everything about it. It's the kind of place where you got to and you went, why would you go anywhere else? Right? Why would you leave Eden? Well, the answer is because the purpose of God is not for you to stay in Eden. The purpose of God, as he says to you, right at the outset of creating you, is for you to spread out, for you to go out and to fill the earth. And, and let's be clear that this isn't just a call for people to populate the earth. The call is for people to go out and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They are God glorifiers, and as they go forth bearing his image, they bring God's glory to other regions, other places around the earth. And it continues then, this mandate in Genesis chapter 9. The encouragement here for us is one might think, well, okay, I understand that Adam and Eve, humanity, were given the charge in the garden when everything was good to fill the earth and to fill the earth with the glory of God. But what we see is the reality that this is repeated right after the fall. And so the word, the charge that goes out to Noah 
and his sons is nearly verbatim with which was stated in Genesis chapter 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't stay on Ararat, don't stay in this particular area, but instead go out and fill the earth with glory. How far? How far should you go? Where's this point at which you're supposed to stop doing that? And of course, the answer is there isn't one. You go to the ends of the earth. You go to the uttermost parts of the earth. You go to every place. It is to be filled with the glory of the Lord. And one of the things that I want for us to see here is that, uh, that this mission, or this commission, if you will, is part and parcel of who we are as humanity. God didn't just tack this on at the end. God didn't say, listen, I'm going to do a lot of good things for you. I'm going to make a great place for you. I'm going to bless you. Oh, and by the way, I want you to go out and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's part of who we are. It's woven in to the nature of being a human, of being a person made in the image of God. I have been known, uh, and some of you know this more specifically in this room than others, uh, when I write a job description, the job description ends with the phrase, uh, and other duties as a sign. And, and, and other duties as a sign, whether you've gotten one that says that or not, basically what that means is there's going to be stuff that I haven't thought of, and we're just going to need to do it. And I'm going to need you to do it in some setting. Other duties as a sign. This isn't, the, the, the command to fill the earth isn't an afterthought. It isn't an other duty as a sign. It is the very first thing that God says to humanity. The very first direction that he points us in is a global look. Now, we don't know how, you know, how did Adam and Eve conceive of the earth? I don't know. I have perfect knowledge, but I don't know how they conceived of what that meant. But nevertheless, the point is you got to go and you keep going until somehow you reach the other side or something like that. This is part of who we are. But of course, as, as we look at this and as we trace through these readings, I hope you notice uh, something that is encouraging is this isn't something that we do alone. It's not something that we do on our own. It's not something where, you know, this is a task that God gave and then God looks over here while you're doing that particular task. Instead, this is a task that we do in God and with God. We are in filling the earth, joining in the intent and the purpose of God. It's his mission. It's what he wants to see done, and therefore it is that for us as well. It's a second means by which God reveals to us the macro intent, the grand scheme, the purpose that he has, is by not only giving this to us as a command, but by making it a promise that he says, I'm going to fulfill this. I will fulfill what is said here. I'm going to fill the earth with the knowledge of my glory. And that's good news for us. Because here's the reality. In every age, if you stop and we kind of survey the world that is around us, while, while we can appreciate in every age that indeed the earth is full of wonder, what we cannot help but see and help but experience is that 
in equal or even greater measures to the wonder that we see in the world is the reality that we see so much evil and trouble in the world. We look at the world and we see a world that's full of injustice and full of hatred, full of fear and fear-mongering, full of vanity and pride and death. And, and I don't know about you, but this is one of those weeks that really felt like that. You were paying attention to what was going on in the world and in our country this week. It was one of those weeks that made you go, wow, this was tough. This is tough. But there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new under the sun. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Filling the world, though, with glory, with the glory of God, would seem to be, in light of what we see and experience around the world, so much striving after the wind. Because it seems like a drop in the bucket compared to all of the evil that we see and confront in the world. But, but into the apparent futility, God says not only that you should do this, not only that this is a mandate that I'm giving to you, but I will. God says, the earth will be filled. I will shake the nations. I will fill this house with my glory. And that passage again from Malachi, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus says it this way, I will build my church. Is it a command that's given to us, all of those? Yes, it absolutely is. But what it is from God is a promise and a commitment. God saying, I'm going to do it. Because it's going to seem like futility to you. I am committed to this. And that for us, that for us gives us, I hope, hope and confidence and some energy to go back to it again when it seems like there's no hope when it seems like we're not making any progress at all in filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. The macro intent of God for the global glory of God is going to be fulfilled. And in order to foster, to just nurture that in us, we've got pictures all throughout Scripture. A few of those are here for us. We get the picture that, that Isaiah sees in the vision of the seraphim who are crying out, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. They have eyes to see in a way that we can't even see yet. The whole earth is now full of his glory. We get a picture in here, a, a metaphor of the, the waters covering the sea. And can we imagine that God's glory will be that pervasive, that deep in this world? And then, of course, in Isaiah chapter 11, we have the, the image given to us of a mountain. And there's no hurt and there's no destruction on this mountain. That's what it looks like when the glory of the Lord fills every place. We'll look more at these pictures in a couple of weeks. But I want to pause and just ask another question here for a moment and, and ask it this way. If God's macro intent is for global glory, and if that's the case from the beginning... Throughout the Old Testament, which we see in all of these verses, and certainly, clearly, it's the case 
in the New Testament as well. If that's the intent of God, then why Israel? Why a particular people? And, and why the place? Why Canaan? Why do you have these two small things? It seems, it seems that that's rather tribal and local. Tribal and local. This one tribe here, these are your chosen people. This one very small location on all the earth. This is the place of all the places. Why Israel? I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is this. In one single word, the answer is microcosm. Microcosm. I don't mean this to be in any way disrespectful at all towards Israel, nor is my intent to diminish the significance of what God did, but Israel is a microcosm. Okay? The, the word microcosm. Micro means small or little, of course. Cosm comes from cosmos, world, all that exists. Microcosm. Israel is a little world to help us see the larger world. Israel was to be the epitome of a place filled with glory. She was to epitomize what this plan of God would look like. Epitomize, to cut out, to cut out a portion of something. This is the epitome right here. Take a look at this, a place filled with glory. Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, they were all in their own way microcosms. And in our finitude, it's difficult for us to comprehend, to envision this worldwide plan of God to fill the nations with, our glo with his glory. And so what he does is he just provides models for us. He provides ways for us to conceive of it, to comprehend it. Think for a moment uh, or imagine an architect providing a city council with uh, a, a, an architectural model or mock-up of what a particular area might look like if it were developed in a certain way. The point of doing that is because he might not be able to convey, she might not be able to convey in words what's in the mind and what could be like what the place could be like and so the model is created to allow others to look at it and go oh, okay i get it i understand what this looks like i can make sense of it i can visualize it uh when our architect was working on this building and particularly working on the second floor we were having trouble thinking through a couple of things and so they made not, a, not an actual model, but a 3D model that you could look at in a virtual tour of a 3D model of the upstairs. And having that helped us to see what needed to be done and how it needed to be done. Israel was a microcosm for the sake of the world. A redeemed people in a promised place dwelling with God or God dwelling with them, however you want to say it. That's what Israel was. But the microcosm isn't the end, right? The, the model, the architectural model, isn't the end. The microcosm isn't the end either. And in addition to it just being small, we can also see Israel's persistent disobedience and the faith failure that demonstrate that this, in fact, is not the end. In fact, the reality is that the failure 
of the model is built into the model itself. It's built into Israel. And, and the point of building in failure into that model is so that you don't get too caught up in that thing in and of itself. Don't get too caught up in the tabernacle or too caught up in the temple or too caught up in the land itself. Instead, scan the horizon. Get your eyes up and look for, we can put it in the words of Hebrews, a city whose architect and building is God himself. Look for something more eternal. Now, if you've been with us here for the last seven weeks in this study, you'll understand where this points us to. You'll understand what's on the horizon because out of the collapsed model that is Israel rises a shoot, rises a, a little branch that comes out of that, and it is, in fact, the one who is the eternal word of God, the one through whom all things were made now become flesh, if you will, it's macrocosm, the eternal word of God, and microcosm in flesh coming together. Everything in this one. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That which Israel could never image in herself, that which Adam and Eve could not image in themselves, is now for us on display in Jesus Christ, who is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In him, the promise of the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That promise takes on flesh in him. And then from him, the old mission, the old commission goes forth. So from his mouth, the one who is enfleshed, goes forth the old command. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of that should sound familiar in light of the passages that I've read for us from the Old Testament. The Great Commission is not new. It's not an add-on. It didn't just come in. Jesus said, well, you know, now that I'm resurrected, here's another idea. Go take this to the world. It's not new. It's an old commission. In fact, it's the very original commission that is given to mankind. The scope of God's concern with the uttermost parts of the earth is not new. It's old. It's always been the plan of God. He's had no other plan but that, that the whole earth should be filled with his glory. God's people, blessed, to carry the message of blessing to every place in the world is not new. It's an old story. In fact, it's the story from the very beginning. So God blessed them. They're created and blessed by God. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Or 
if you noticed in the Psalm 67 with which we started our worship service, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? Because that's really nice? Well, yeah, that's really nice. But the why is in verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. It's the exact same pattern as Genesis chapter 1. The exact same pattern. You're blessed by God, and part of what it means to be a human is then to look out at the world and say, how can I be a part of the mission of God? How can I be part of sending this good news of the saving power of God throughout all of the world? And, and so, when Jesus in the resurrection comes before the disciples and says to you, or to them, peace be with you, that's, that's the blessing, and then right after that, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's the pattern. We should recognize the pattern. That's, that's the pattern from page one of your Bible all the way through your Bible of how God has wired his people. So here's my question for us today. If the macro intent, the plan of God remains the same, and if the macro microcosm of Jesus Christ our Lord, if in him we have from his fullness, this is just quoting John, if we've received grace upon grace, seen promises in flesh, been empowered by his resurrection and by his spirit, and heard his reiteration, his annunciation once again of the old mission, if all of that is true, then what are you doing about it? What's your part? What's your part in that mission of God? What's our part collectively as a church in that mission of God? God is going to do it. No doubt about it. That's his plan. To the uttermost parts of the earth, God is going to do it. He said, I will. But from the beginning, he has given us the high and the exalted calling to participate. To join. What's your part in God's global mission? His mission is for the ends of the earth. What is your role in it? Is there a vision that drives you, that compels you? Let me just ask this because I don't ask it very often. Are you called to go someplace? Now, maybe really quickly in your mind, you go, No, I'm not called to go anyplace. I'm called to be here in this place. Are you called? by God to go someplace with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live, despite all of its difficulties, in a rather comfortable place in this world. It doesn't seem like that to us because we're blasted by the things that we see and the things that we hear. But nevertheless, if you've been to other places in the world and you compare them with the place in which you live, there's really not much of a comparison. We complain a lot as Americans. Oh, my friends, get out a little bit. Or at least get out a little bit through some other people. And we'll hear a very different story. John Piper years ago warned about the inertia of ease and the apathy of abundance. He said the lesson 
is that comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. The very things that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money for the missionary cause instead produce the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, and a preoccupation with security. With making sure that everything's okay for me and my family, in my house, in our future. I fear that that might apply to us. And I'm not talking about the church general right now, I'm talking about us. I fear it might apply to us and I fear that part of it might be my fault. Maybe, well, no, definitely. When I came here to serve as the pastor of this church 10 years ago, I thought to myself, I don't want to be the missionary who comes in and only is telling stories about the mission field instead of being the pastor of this congregation. And so I shied away from talking about missions because I didn't want that. I, I wanted you to have a pastor and not a missionary. And, and maybe then I let you down. I didn't talk about the things that drive me and have driven me throughout my life. I didn't talk as I should have from scripture about the call to partake in the global intent of God to bring his glory. And if so, forgive me. I repent of that before you, if that is the reality. Is the Lord calling you? Are you preparing to go? Are you willing to go? Those, frankly, are questions that have animated my life for 35, more than 35 years now. And they've got to be somewhere in your soul. Somewhere in your soul, those questions have to be there because that's the purpose of God, and it's the way you were created. It's not an addendum. Oh, we came to church and we heard about this. No, it's not an addendum. It's part of who we are. And if not, if you're not willing to go, if you're not preparing to go, then let us do all that we can to send. John, writing in 3 John of itinerant missionaries, says this, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, where they have gone out for the sake of the name. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Okay, you're not going? Okay. You still have an opportunity to be a fellow worker for the truth as you join with those who have gone. Every place will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And we should be doing everything in our power with a view towards that vision. That's the vision that should drive us. It should drive us if we're thinking about folks we support overseas, it should drive us as well. If we're thinking about our backyard, how does every place 
begin to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, as I prepared this sermon, as I got to this point, I thought, Lord, Lord, is that you? I didn't tell you that. <laughs> this is not a farewell I'm going off to the mission field sermon. I've been there. I've been all around this world in all sorts of obscure, difficult, hard places. And we came back to be on the mission field. Okay? So you know. We came back not to be home. Not because we thought Philly was the greatest place or you were the greatest people in the world. We came back to be on the mission field. To be part of the gospel in every place. And now by God's calling and appointment, this particular place. But this sermon is a call to spiritual arms. For the sake of the name and for the sake of the dominion of the gentle and lowly Lord Jesus Christ, he is no mere local deity. May his kingdom come in every place. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be driven by that vision. That we would fill our minds, saturate ourselves with this reality that you have commanded of us and promised will be the ultimate reality. That that would grip us and it would cause us to look in this place and to consider every place as a place where your glory and the knowledge of it needs to dwell. Send us, send our children, send our best, and help us to send others along their way and to be invested, to be partners, partakers of this great mission that belongs to you and belongs to us, your image bearers. Forgive us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.